Welcome to the Reading Room. I'm Xeni, the creator of A Writer's Lighthouse. In this podcast, we'll read selected passages from novels, short stories, poetry and more, and break down the prose to identify what makes a story memorable and impactful, and what we can learn from it as writers. We'll be looking closely at some of the most engaging and immersive narratives in literature to harness and identify the devices and methods which capture the reader. In each episode, I'll read an extract aloud before we work through a short, close reading of one or two paragraphs. We'll then finish with an exercise for you to try at home. Are you ready? Then let's begin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Reading Room podcast. Today, we'll be reviewing the narrative style and devices of Withering Heights by Emily Bronte to explore what we can learn about narrative exposition as writers. As it was for Great Expectations, one episode would not be enough to work through the learnings we could derive from Withering Heights. We could dissect it paragraph by paragraph and still return to it another day. Reigning in my enthusiasm, I thought we should start at the beginning and explore our introduction to the narrator, the first characters, and the setting of the novel itself. There are a number of reasons why I looked at this novel for inspiration as a writer and escapism as a reader. Its wildness, vividness, and creativity both alarmed and awed me as a teenager. Catherine's ghost at the window in the early chapters haunted me for days. These impressions would only intensify as I reread the book in the years to come. With each revisit, the words would cast more light on my interpretation and understanding. I wanted to be a writer whose work resulted in these reactions from its readers. I still do. Before we start, I'd like to share two facts for inspiration. Number one, Withering Heights was self-published under the pseudonym Ellis Bell, having been rejected by traditional publishers at the time. Her sisters, Catherine and Anne, had done the same for their written work. I love this fact, that the sisters persevered and found a way to circumnavigate cultural prejudices. Number two, Carabelle, aka Catherine Bronte, presented a biographical notice for the 1850 edition of Withering Heights, which details and clarifies the origin story of the three sisters and their efforts to become published authors under their male pseudonyms, Cara for Catherine, Acton for Anne, and Ellis for Emily. The following statement spoke to me all those years ago as an English literature student writing my short stories between classes and part-time jobs. I hope it resonates with you just as much today as an aspiring writer, both to catalyse your creativity and to fuel your motivation for your works in progress. Quote, Ill success failed to crush us. The mere effort to succeed had given a wonderful zest to existence. It must be pursued. End quote. By Cara Bell. As you listen to the chapter, I'd like you to think about exposition. The first paragraph or paragraphs in which the character's time and place is introduced to the reader. Think about how this information is presented to us and how the action propels the story forward. Reading as a writer allows you to look at the prose and deconstruct it to reveal the how underneath. Let's begin. Withering Heights by Emily Bronte Chapter 1 1801. I have just returned from a visit to my landlord, a solitary neighbour that I shall be troubled with. This is certainly a beautiful country. In all England, I do not believe that I could have fixed on a situation so completely removed from the stir of society. A perfect misanthropist heaven. And Mr Heathcliff and I are such a suitable pair to divide the desolation between us. A capital fellow, he little imagined how my heart warmed towards him when I beheld his black eyes withdraw so suspiciously under their brows as I rode up. 
and when his fingers sheltered themselves with a jealous resolution still further in his waistcoat as I announced my name. Mr Heathcliff, I said. A nod was the answer. Mr Lockwood, your new tenant, sir. I do myself the honour of calling as soon as possible after my arrival to express the hope that I have not inconvenienced you by my perseverance in soliciting the occupation of Thrushcross Grange. I heard yesterday you had some thoughts. Thrushcross Grange is my own, sir, he interrupted, wincing. I should not allow anyone to inconvenience me if I could hinder it. Walk in. The walk in was uttered with closed teeth and expressed the sentiment go to the deuce. Even the gate over which he leant manifested no sympathising movement to the words. And I think that circumstance determined me to accept the invitation. I felt interested in a man who seemed more exaggeratedly reserved than myself. When he saw my horse's breast fairly pushing the barrier, he did put out his hand to unchain it, and then sullenly preceded me up the causeway, calling, as we entered the court, Joseph, take Mr Lockwood's horse and bring up some wine. Here we have the whole establishments of domestics, I suppose, was the reflection suggested by this compound order. No wonder the grass grows up between the flags and cattle are the only hedge cutters. Joseph was an elderly, nay, an old man, very old perhaps, though hale and sinewy. The Lord help us, he soliloquized in an undertone of peevish displeasure, while relieving me of my horse, looking meantime in my face so sourly that I charitably conjectured he must have need of divine aid to digest his dinner, and his pious ejaculation had no reference to my unexpected advent. Withering Heights is the name of Mr Heathcliff's dwelling. Withering being a significant provincial adjective, descriptive of the atmospheric tumult to which its station is exposed in stormy weather. Pure, bracing ventilation they must have up there at all times indeed. One may guess the power of the north wind blowing over the edge by the excessive slant of a few stunted firs at the end of the house and by a range of gaunt thorns all stretching their limbs one way as if craving arms of the sun. Happily, the architect had foresight to build it strong. The narrow windows are deeply set in the wall and the corners defended with large jutting stones. Before passing the threshold, I paused to admire a quantity of grotesque carving lavished over the front and especially about the principal door above which, among a wilderness of crumbling griffins and shameless little boys, I detected the date 1500, and the name Hareton Earnshaw. I would have made a few comments and requested a short history of the place from the surly owner, but his attitude at the door appeared to demand my speedy entrance or complete departure, and I had no desire to aggravate his impatience previous to inspecting the penetralium. One step brought us into the family sitting-room, without any introductory lobby or passage. They call it here the house preeminently. It includes kitchen and parlour generally. But I believe at Withering Heights the kitchen is forced to retreat altogether into another quarter. At least I distinguished a chatter of tongues and a clatter of culinary utensils deep within. And I observed no signs of roasting, boiling or baking about the huge fireplace, nor any glitter of copper saucepans and tin colanders on the walls. One end, indeed, reflected splendidly both light and heat from the ranks of immense pewter dishes interspersed with silver jugs and tankards, towering row after row on a vast oak dresser to the very roof. The latter had never been underdrawn. Its entire anatomy lay bare to an inquiring eye, except where a frame of wood laden with oatcakes and clusters of legs of beef and mutton and ham concealed it. Above the chimney were sun-dry villainous old guns and a couple of horse pistols, and by way of ornament, three gaudily painted canisters disposed along its edge. The floor was a smooth white stone, the chairs high-backed, primitive structures painted green, one or two heavy black ones lurking in the shade. 
in an arch under the dresser would repose a huge liver-coloured bitch pointer, surrounded by a swarm of squealing puppies, and other dogs haunted other recesses. The apartment and furniture would have been nothing extraordinary as belonging to a homely northern farmer with a stubborn countenance and stalwart limbs set out to advantage in knee breeches and gaiters. Such an individual seated in his armchair, his mug of ale frothing on the round table before him, is to be seen in any circuit of five or six miles among these hills if you go at the right time after dinner. But Mr Heathcliff forms a singular contrast to his abode and style of living. He is a dark-skinned gypsy in aspect in dress and manners a gentleman, that is, as much a gentleman as many a country squire, rather slovenly, perhaps, yet not looking amiss with his negligence because he has an erect and handsome figure, and rather morose. Possibly some people might suspect him of a degree of underbred pride. I have a sympathetic cord within that tells me it is nothing of the sort. I know by instinct his reserve springs from an aversion to showy displays of feeling, to manifestations of mutual kindliness, He'll love and hate equally under cover, and esteem it a species of impertinence to be loved or hated again. No, I'm running on too fast. I bestow my own attributes over-liberally on him. Mr Heathcliff may have entirely dissimilar reasons for keeping his hand out of the way when he meets a would-be acquaintance to those which actuate me. Let me hope my constitution is almost peculiar. My dear mother used to say I should never have a comfortable home and only last summer I proved myself perfectly unworthy of one. While enjoying a month of fine weather at the seacoast, I was thrown into the company of a most fascinating creature, a real goddess in my eyes as long as she took notice of me. I never told my love vocally. Still, if looks have language, the merest idiot might have guessed I was over head and ears. She understood me at last and looked to return, the sweetest of all imaginable looks. And what did I do? I confess it with shame, shrunk icily into myself like a snail. At every glance retired, colder and farther. Till finally the poor innocent was led to doubt her own senses and, overwhelmed with confusion at her supposed mistake, persuaded her mamma to decamp. By this curious turn of disposition I have gained the reputation of deliberate heartlessness. How undeserved I alone can appreciate. I took a seat at the end of the hearthstone opposite that towards which my landlord advanced, and filled up an interval of silence by attempting to caress the canine mother, who had left her nursery and was sneaking wolfishly to the back of my legs, her lip curled up and her white teeth watering for a snatch. My caress provoked a long, guttural gnarl. You'd better let the dog alone, growled Mr Heathcliff in unison, checking fiercer demonstrations with a punch of his foot. She's not accustomed to be spoiled, not kept for a pet. Then, striding to a side door, he shouted again, Joseph! Joseph mumbled indistinctly in the depths of the cellar, but gave no intimation of ascending. So his master dived down to him, leaving me vis-a-vis -vis the ruffinly bitch and a pair of grim shaggy sheepdogs, who shared with her a jealous guardianship over all my movements. Not anxious to come in contact with their fangs, I sat still. But imagining they would scarcely understand tacit insults, I unfortunately indulged in winking and making faces at the trio, and some turn on my physiognomy so irritated Madame that she suddenly broke into a fury and leapt on my knees. I flung her back and hastened to interpose the table between us. This proceeding aroused the whole hive. Half a dozen four-footed fiends of various sizes and ages issued from hidden dens to the common centre. 
I felt my heels and coat laps peculiar subjects of assault, and powering off the larger combatants as effectually as I could with the poker, I was constrained to demand, aloud, assistance from some of the household in re-establishing peace. Mr Heathcliff and his man climbed the cellar steps with vexatious phlegm. I don't think they moved one second faster than usual, though the hearth was an absolute tempest of worrying and yelping. Happily, an inhabitant of the kitchen made more dispatch. A lusty dame with tucked up gown, bare arms and fire flushed cheeks rushed into the midst of us flourishing a frying pan, and used that weapon and her tongue to such purpose that the storm subsided magically and she only remained heaving like a sea after a high wind when her master entered on the scene. "'What the devil is the matter?' he asked, eyeing me in a manner that I could ill endure after this inhospitable treatment. "'What the devil indeed?' I muttered. "'The herd of possessed swine could have had no worse spirits in them than those animals of yours, sir. You might as well leave a stranger with a brood of tigers.' "'They won't meddle with persons who touch nothing,' he remarked, putting the bottle before me and restoring the displaced table. "'The dogs do right to be vigilant. Take a glass of wine.' "'No, thank you. Not bitten, are you?' If I had been, I would have set my signet on the biter. Heathcliff's countenance relaxed into a grin. Come, come, he said, you are flurried, Mr Lockwood. Here, take a little wine. Guests so exceedingly rare in this house that I and my dogs, I am willing to own, hardly know how to receive them. Your health, sir. I bowed and returned the pledge, beginning to perceive that it would be foolish to sit sulking for the misbehaviour of a pack of curs. Besides, I felt loth to yield the fellow further amusement at my expense, since his humour took that turn. He, probably swayed by potential consideration of the folly of offending a good tenant, relaxed a little in the laconic style of chipping off his pronouns and auxiliary verbs, and introduced what he supposed would be a subject of interest to me, a discourse on the advantages and disadvantages of my present place of retirement. I found him very intelligent on the topics we touched, and before I went home I was encouraged so far as to volunteer another visit tomorrow. He evidently wished no repetition of my intrusion. I shall go notwithstanding. It is astonishing how sociable I feel myself compared with him. I loved reading this chapter out aloud, and it carried on reading well after I'd stopped recording. Reading chapter two refreshed my memory around Lockwood's dubious behaviour as our primary narrator. But we'll get to that in a moment. The key device we're looking at today is narrative exposition. Information about the setting, character backstories, prior plot events, historical context, and so on. Let's start at the beginning. At the opening of the chapter, we are presented with a date. 1801, suggesting that we are reading someone's diary or journal. This also places the reader within the setting for the novel and confirms the narrative form. While the present is 1801, the primary storyline takes place many years prior. Lockwood, the new tenant at Thrushcross Grange, is our narrator. Not, as you would expect, the story's protagonists, Heathcliff and Catherine. It's interesting to bear this in mind. The person that's introducing your story might not be the main character at the beginning. We understand that Lockwood has just returned to Thrushcross Grange when the story begins and is reflecting on his experience that he relays to the reader. Through Lockwood, we are introduced to the isolated setting of the run-down house and to Heathcliff, who seems to revel in his isolation. Let's look at the language or diction used to describe Withering Heights. The house is built strong, with jutting stones and grotesque carving lavished over the front, indicative of being resolute, hostile and unmoving. Villainous old guns adorn the space above the fireplace. The chairs are primitive structures. 
The imagery of the home furnishings is aligned to the uncultured, provincial setting of the land surrounding the house. Foreshadowing is provided through the concept around the ownership of property. The name Hareton Earnshaw is not explained at this point, but the family name plays a crucial role in Wuthering Heights, and we provided this piece of information at the very beginning as something of a marker for us to be aware of later down the line. Two servants also live at Wuthering Heights, Joseph, the old man with a peevish disposition and an air of religious fanaticism, and the lusty dame with her tucked-up gown, bare arms and fire-flushed cheeks, the frying pan who puts a stop to the bustle with the dogs. They too are presented as uncultured, unchecked and unwelcoming. The cacophony through the chatter of tongues at the back of the house and the clatter of culinary utensils deep within, plus squealing puppies, illustrates a chaos and unruliness to the heights, which the author has drawn to serve as a comparison to Thrushcross Grange later in the novel. Let's look more closely at the scene with the dogs, which narrows in on this theme further. There is the jealous guardianship over Lockwood's movements marking the scene with the air of distrust and vigilance of strangers to the heights, and the world inside it, much like Heathcliff over his home and his ambitions for it. The ruffianly bitch became suddenly furious at being mocked by Lockwood. He blamed a turn of his facial expression, but we recognised that he was mocking her, and this was the cause of her anger, proceeding to rouse a hive of remaining fiends. Lockwood feels assaulted by the overall tempestuous behaviour, but as readers, we look at it as a humorous scene, an impression shared by Heathcliff, whose countenance relaxed into a grin. While the language used to describe the event is aggressive and violent, it stems from a desire to protect the home. This reads again as a foreshadow to later scenes within the novel, particularly surrounding Heathcliff's feelings and actions towards Cathy and those around her. How is the countryside surrounding the Heights put forward? Well, it is a beautiful country, completely removed from the stir of society. The grass grows up between the flags, and cattle are the only hedge cutters, presents an uncultured and wild environment. A perfect misanthropist's heaven. This juxtaposition of elements, or opposition, creates deliberate differences for the reader to contrast. Bronte, as the writer, as the creator of this space, invites us to consider the relationship between those elements more closely. This device of presenting opposites against each other, and in instances attracting, is repeatedly used throughout the novel, subliminally set at the back of our minds so that we recognise it each time it occurs. Lockwood makes observations that jar in the context of the novel. He makes regular assumptions based on his impressions, such as, I detected, I believe, and I suppose. This language is purposely placed to align the characters unreliable. Furthermore, our storyteller is not welcome at the heights, and we know this from the opening paragraphs. Heathcliff both interrupts him and winces as he speaks to him. The servants are equally unwelcoming. I'd like to draw your attention to specific language used to describe Heathcliff and his character traits in this chapter. Words that, as the novel continues, will appear throughout and deepen his character profile. As we had discussed for great expectations, these are character tags and traits. He has dark black eyes. His hands are suspicious. His moods sullen, surly, sour and wincing. He is a dark-skinned gypsy in aspect. He comes across slovenly and morose according to Lockwood. The interior of the house does not match Heathcliff's personality. He is out of place, an outsider when he arrived, a gypsy and took control of the homely house throughout the novel. Lockwood mentions twice that Heathcliff does not extend a hand to him, yet he still considers Heathcliff a gentleman. 
At the close of the chapter, Lockwood recognises that Heathcliff has no desire to see him again, yet he plans to visit the following day regardless. This use of paradox is there to jar the reader as they look to make sense of Lockwood's portrayal of the Heights and its landlord. Lockwood also projects his personality onto Heathcliff by way of developing a kinship, perhaps so as not to feel isolated with himself. Mr Heathcliff and I are such a suitable pair to divide the desolation between us. The two characters are nothing alike, in fact. Lockwood misjudges Heathcliff throughout, setting the reader on alert to not take his perceptions as a full truth. This creates a feeling of distrust at the onset of the novel. By the end of the chapter, we can identify several themes that resonate throughout the novel. We have the wild, uncultured occupants of Withering Heights, the landlord, the two servants and the hive of dogs, against the proposed sophistication of Lockwood, who has arrived from society. The theme of history and origin is set here too. Heathcliff is the gypsy who owns his estate. Lockwood is a gentleman with a tainted reputation seeking refuge in the country as a tenant. Overall, the opening chapter presents more questions than it answers. What chaos will Lockwood encounter at this next visit? What further proposed insights will he provide? And what, most importantly, will the reader make of his version of events and the additional characters they are introduced to? The reader's attention is hooked and is encouraged to continue reading. What did you make of this chapter? To wrap up the episode, I'd like to share a writing exercise for you to practice the devices we cover in the close reading. For today, we covered exposition, the role of the narrator, and character traits. With a copy of Withering Heights in hand, or ear if you have audiobooks, or would like to listen to this reading again, work through chapter one with a critical eye and make notes on the words and phrases chosen for this passage. Set yourself 30 minutes for this exercise. However, should you want to keep going into the next chapters or you find yourself inspired to work on your own story, that's great. Please do and enjoy. Thank you for joining me this week. If you haven't already, I hope you'll follow or subscribe to the podcast in your favourite podcast app. We've covered a lot in today's episode, so if you'd like to read the full show notes, including today's exercise, head to a writerslighthouse.com forward slash podcast and search by book title. You can subscribe to the newsletter for more writing tips, prompts and resources to guide your narrative journey when you need it at a writerslighthouse.com forward slash subscribe. It's great that you're here on this journey with me in today's episode of the Reading Room podcast. Until next time, keep reading and writing with your eyes to the horizon.